trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I swear every day, as I look around, it feels like we are just in the midst of a giant episode of psychological warfare. And maybe it's because I'm, you know, it's very possible I'm paying attention to the wrong things or I'm focusing on on things that maybe are a waste of time. But, you know, just trying to get a feel for what's happening in the world. There is so much just blatant in your face that's not happening or this is happening or, this, you know, I'll give you a couple quick examples. Um, I think we touched on this yesterday. The guy uh, who apparently drove into one of the White House gates in a U-Haul truck. A white supremacist, apparently. <clears throat> he appears to be East Indian, and that's what his name sounded like. And Anyway, a very dark complexion, but nonetheless a white supremacist, because apparently that's the biggest threat to the country, just happened to have a Nazi flag with him, which was uh, carefully pulled out. No tampering with evidence here, folks. But uh, carefully pulled out of the truck <clears throat> and laid out on the pavement, you know, for a perfect photo op. You just have to go, really? That's uh, <laughs> how curious, you know, right after the president was just talking about this at Howard University. Wow, white supremacy is the scariest and, and most dangerous thing that's happening here. By the way, I just want to be clear. There are people out there who I would say are probably white supremacists. There, there are legit skinhead, racist type people who thrive on hating anybody who isn't like them. Now, at the same time, there are also people out there who are absolutely obsessed with race, who are not skinheads or white supremacists, and are just as offensive and just as wrong-headed and misguided as their goose-stepping, you know, uh, Roman salute-throwing uh, counterparts. But the narrative says, oh, no, no, you, you, you can't be racist against white people. And so, anyway, another example of that, by the way. The, uh, the little, the, the young man in, in the U.K., I believe he goes by the name of Mizzy. He's an actor. He's 18 years old, and this is a black kid who, who films himself for TikTok, walking into people's houses, walking up to people and intimidating them, like actually literally walking up to a girl at a bus stop. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're ready to die. And just, you know, bizarre behavior, jumping in somebody's car. You're my Uber. And when the person tells him, get out, I'm, you know, I'm not your Uber driver, you know, just persisting. Stealing a lady's dog. They showed him yesterday being arrested by the police. And yet there's something about that clip that again, this is why I say it's it's just this is just psychological warfare. The clip begins with him in handcuffs, standing there with a couple of his friends and a couple of police officers. A female police officer is holding his arm, and it's like someone gives her, okay, action. And she literally kind of nods her head and okay, starts perp walking him into the police station. I guess my point here is just simply this. Who can you believe? Oh, here's one more example. Sorry, I got to get this one off my chest. I mentioned yesterday <clears throat> that Target is apparently, well, you know, like a lot of retailers, they're they're pushing pride. You know, they're pushing, you know, trans stuff. 
they're, they're as caught up in the wokeness as, as pretty much anybody. But it came out yesterday that one, one of their suppliers, one of their designers, is apparently a, a very unabashed and avowed Satanist. And so that kind of imagery shows up in a lot of the, the clothing and the accessories that, that this person designs. Well, when that became common knowledge, when people said, hey, whoa, parents, if you're uh, taking your kids shopping, you know, for summer clothes or summer, you know, accessories, this is kind of crazy stuff that we're seeing at Target. Now, Target has removed certain items from its stores ahead of Pride Month after what, uh, you know, some news organizations are saying is intense backlash from some of its customers, including violent confrontations with workers. You notice how they go straight for, oh, well, we're worried about violence, and that's why we're going to have to, you know, pull these things off the floor. If that was the truth, though, notice I said if, why did they also pull them from the online shopping? Hmm? You have a lot of problem with violence? People mashing the key, buy this thing! No. It's just, it's, it's a big pretend drama and, and maybe, I don't know, were they trying to instigate some kind of pushback? I can't imagine any parent worth his or her salt who isn't at some level going, holy cow, how far are they going to push this as far as trying to, to, to reach out and tag young minds and drag young people into this uh, not just, you know, bizarre counterculture, but, but absolutely wicked counterculture. And I, you know, I can't imagine, my kids are old enough now, I feel like they're, they're pretty well, they're on their way, which is not to say that they're perfect, and yes, they're all little carbon copies of me, thank goodness they're not. But I fear for these parents, with young kids, like kindergarten age kids, or even younger, because it appears that's where the attention is being focused. We've got to woo these kids. We've got to, you know, get it into their schools. We've got to get it into their libraries. We've got to get it into their clothing and their accessories. I guess the, the divide that we've seen taking place in society has been going on for a while. And, uh, you know, I, I guess you just have to take it with a grain of salt. Everything you hear, that includes anything that I'm sharing with you. Take it with a grain of salt. I liked uh, Sasha Stone's take, by the way. She tweeted this out earlier this morning. Keyword, violent. She says, I don't mind people objecting to this, but she says, I resent and I'll push back against the suggestion that it's violent extremism when it's really about parents worried that some social contagion is on the rise, making kids infertile. And she's talking about the whole trans ideology now coupled with Satanism and being mass marketed, you know, at various retail locations. I know we're supposed to feel like, well, you're the extremist. You're, you're extreme. You're the far right. Which, by the way, when you hear those words now, you can know with confidence. Anytime someone starts to apply the label, well, you're an extremist or you're far right or whatever, what they're really saying, this is the translation. I can't control you and it frustrates me. So I have to try to label you as something that, that will be scary or at least be a dog whistle to my fellow travelers who likewise need to know that, hey, it's, come on, the two minutes hate has begun and this is, this is our focus. Look, I'm not uh, encouraging you, hey, you should go out there and start confrontation with people. I don't think that's a productive or healthy way to live. But you're going to be called names if you have the backbone to stand up for anything that is true 
or right. You're going to. That's the world we live in right now. And I hope that programs like this will not only affirm that it's necessary to do this from time to time. We're in one of those historical cycles where if you're going to stand for something, you're going to suffer for it. I just want to encourage you, be one of those people. Be willing to shine the light into the darkness. Be willing to show people that there's a better way. Be willing to suffer for your beliefs. And when people call you names, and they will, and they will smear and they will taunt and so forth, wear it as a badge of honor. Number one, you're living rent-free in their heads. Okay, They wouldn't do this if you were having no impact whatsoever. If they didn't see you as a threat, they wouldn't care. They'd leave you alone. They're trying to denigrate and tear down the people who actually are making a difference. So if you're taking fire, congratulations. <laughs> You've been noticed, and very likely you're having impact. All right, I kind of went off on a little bit of a rant, but man, I'm just I'm watching this stuff happen. And again, it just there, there's every sense that we are in the midst of a psychological war. And and I don't want you to feel paranoid and think, well, then I just need to shut myself off from the world. If I live in a cave with my hands over my ears, my eyes tightly shut, none of this can ever bother me. That's really not an option. So what we need to do instead is make sure that we are grounded. We have a core foundation of understanding of who we are, what we stand for, and, and something that's firm enough that it's not going to you know, wash away the second our circumstances change or that someone comes at us with a label or, or, or attacks us. It takes time to build that kind of a foundation, by the way. But the best way that I know of to do it is simply live the golden rule as perfectly as you possibly can. Meaning, if it's hateful to you, don't do it to other people. And what you would have people do, or the way that you would treat people, or have them treat you, that's how you should treat them. There's an action component here. It's not just, you know, passively, yes, yes, I love you, you know, and wave at them from afar. You've got to be an active person who is doing good things. And when you do these things, and you see yourself doing them, even when it's not convenient, you can know right to your bones, I'm a good person. There is a net benefit that the world is receiving by the way that I'm living my life. And it's not about being puffed up and, yeah, I'm all that in a bag of chips. It's just about knowing that you're a source of light and you're strong enough to withstand whatever. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Look, I, I really feel like I had to get that rant out of the way, but now I'm going to get to the pay dirt, and I've got some fantastic content to share with you today. Good to see my friend uh, Larry Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education uh, has a, an article out here that is just marvelous. The title is Evil is Rising, But Despair is Not an Option. And I love the subtitle here, too, because I think he zeroes in on something that, that, that rings very true to me. And that is virtually every manifestation of evil involves a desire to dominate and control. In fact, we'll talk a little bit more about this in another segment as well. It, it's not left versus right, Democrat versus Republican. It really comes down to people who want to control others versus those 
who are willing to let others live their lives and peacefully do whatever it is that they're doing to search for happiness. See what Larry's take is here. He says, to many people, the world seems to make less and less sense with each passing day. Values we once cherished and that bound civil society together face daily bombardment. Offensive things are routinely said and done today in ways intended to inflame and divide. Freedoms we took for granted, freedoms of thought, speech, press, religion, are under relentless assault as intrusive government and cancel culture gain ground. He says Orwellian is no longer just an adjective derived from a work of fiction more than seven decades ago. It describes some new development in our lives every day. Words and thoughts once neutral or perhaps disagreeable but not actionable are now treated as if they are crimes. History itself is being rewritten to serve political agendas. Petty tyrannies are morphing into bigger tyrannies as governments play an ever more intrusive role in the lives of their citizens. There's an awful lot of bad behavior going on, and he says perpetrators are getting away with it too. From lying to looting, it feels like an epidemic. He says, now that's not very scientific, I admit. He says, Steven Pinker in his 2011 book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, makes a strong case that humanity is actually more humane today than ever. Statistics exist for murders and thefts, and Pinker provided bushels of them. But how does one measure bald-faced lies, silencing by intimidation, the canceling of dissenting opinions, and the like? Where are the data on hate, spitefulness, callousness, and discourtesy? He says, I worry that the good news Pinker revealed, amidst that good news, something is amiss. Larry Reed says, we are witnessing an alarming collapse of social cohesion that is propelled as if it were consciously planned by something bigger and more menacing than simply falling standards of character. Now he says, I call it evil, and I sense that it's on the loose and on the rise. Rabbi Gershon Winkler of the Walking Stick Foundation in Colorado writes, Today, absolute evil flourishes in clever guises. For instance, distorted versions of social equality or the officially sanctioned proliferation of outright lies and their costly consequences for the economic and physical well-being of entire communities. This form of evil is this form of evil is of the worst sort since it is deceptively camouflaged by rhetoric disguised as humanitarian concern and compassion. Even the serpent in the garden of Eden could not match the evil of draping the wool over the eyes of an entire population and allowing it to slip-slide into passive naivete. Dishonesty and deception have time and again caused the fall of great civilizations. End quote. Now, Larry Reed says evil is a very muscular term. It's intensely pejorative. He says, I wouldn't know how to describe it as something, that, uh, how to describe something that is worse than evil, so I use it as a synonym for as bad as it gets. Its gateway drug is disdain for the truth, the little white lies that lead to bigger ones that then open the door to more heinous offenses. Moreover, he says, I don't deploy the term casually to represent actions or outcomes that result from inanimate forces. In other words, the the hurricane's evil destruction laid waste to the town. Evil is inseparable from morality and moral agents. Ooh, that's a good point. A hurricane is not a moral agent. Only individual human beings are, and therefore both their conscious choices and actions can be judged by a moral code or law. So the most logical next question is, where does a viable, defensible, and universal moral code come from? 
The Judeo-Christian perspective argues that its source is the Creator, and His moral rules are spelled out in the Ten Commandments. A secular perspective claims that a moral code can be deduced from man's nature, particularly the unique and sovereign individuality of each person, apart from anything supernatural. Now, one can argue there are other perspectives, too, rooted in various philosophies and religions. But he says, in the interest of full disclosure, readers should know that I personally embrace both perspectives I reference above. He says, for me, they're compatible, sufficient, and compelling. In other words, Larry Reed says, I'm comfortable maintaining that lying, stealing, injuring, enslaving, and murdering are moral wrongs because they violate at the same time both God's laws and man's nature, his rights in particular. This premise is not the main point of this essay, but if interested readers wish to do so, they can explore my reasoning further in science is affirming creation, not accident. And so he asks, is there a bright line between bad and evil? Larry says, good question, but a good answer is beyond my expertise. He says, I'll venture this much, however. There is an inextricable connection between evil and power. Every manifestation of evil involves a desire to dominate and control, to compel another individual to bow to to one's will. Evil often starts uh, starts out small and draws its victims in one bite at a time. Deception about where it's really headed only magnifies the evilness. The longshoreman philosopher Eric Hoffer poignantly noted, it is by its promise of a sense of power that evil often attracts the weak. Sometimes evil is manifested in an act so horrible, no one can excuse it, like a school shooting. Then evil, gets to, then evil goes to work to get people to ignore real causes and support fake solutions like disarming the innocent. Evil's allies include fear, corruption, chaos, intolerance, deception, and envy. What the Wall Street Journal's Vermont Royster once called the prevalence of of evil seems so palpable to me that I'm tempted to capitalize the word. Now, he says, that may offend some who don't believe that either God or a devil exist as real entities. He says, you, the reader, can make that call. In a May 2023 article at HackSpirit.com, Lachlan Brown identifies the traits of evil people. Okay, pay attention here, this because we could see these traits in ourselves if, if, if we're not living carefully. They revel in the misfortune of others. They bully and manipulate. They fabricate and dissemble, conceal their real selves, and leave you with a weird feeling when you're around them. They're mean to both animals and people. They show no remorse. They evade responsibility for their actions. They also crave power, and when they get it, it becomes their means for institutionalizing terrible things. An evil person believes his ends justify any means. He divides the world between offenders and the offended and sells himself as a savior. He steals, injures, maligns, deceives, deconstructs, or even kills whatever stands in his way. He accuses the innocent of the very crimes he commits. He distorts language in order to confuse rather than enlighten. The mortal enemy of evil is truth. It is profoundly reactionary and pessimistic. It is at war with human nature because it deals with people not as the unique and precious individuals they are, endowed with rights, but as pawns, dupes, and tools. Evil is invariably a foe of individual freedom and an ally of collectivist socialism and its authoritarian impulses. Now, Larry Reed says evil is on the loose. 
The restraints with which civilized society shackled it seem to be dissolving, but he says, do not be depressed by this fact, for a defeatist spirit will fatally disarm you, and that's exactly what evil wants. The last thing evil desires is an informed citizenry eager to resist. It's not inevitable that evil should win unless good people give up. His point is that evil is not a fantasy. It is real. Wherever you believe it comes from, do not submit to it. We must confront it with, the, at the very least, an unwavering dedication to truth, solid personal character, and good ideas. Man, those words ring so true. Again, this is Lawrence W. Reed. I've got a link to the article in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I hope you'll check it out for yourself and share it as widely as possible. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. A quick shout out to my sponsors. They include ClimbingUpward.com, as well as Climbing Upward Music, which you can link to at ClimbingUpward.com, TMCPNation.com, Borelli.com, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. Appreciate those who help to make this program possible. My goal is not fame or richness, and so far I'm succeeding on both counts, <laughs> but uh, I'm here to to speak the truth as best I understand it and to hopefully inspire those who value truth to make the stand they were born to make. Your efforts are needed. Your voice is needed. Your influence is required right now. And I realize that uh, that means, well, Brian, you're probably talking to a pretty small audience. It's true. I'll own that. Not everybody is ready to step up and, 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 and heed that sense of calling. That, that burns in some people's hearts. But I trust that you are one of those people, and I really appreciate you taking the time to tune in. So I want to kind of follow up a little bit on um, Larry Reed's comments about uh, evil. You know, evil is uh, is rising, but we shouldn't despair. And and I'd like to, to just because so much of, of our discourse today is, is steeped in politics, I want to share with you a commentary from uh, Daniel Mitchell. The battle isn't right versus left. It's statism versus individualism. He asks the question, how high does the death toll need to get before people realize that communism, like its sister ideology of Nazism, is despicably evil? Now, you may think, well, why would he ask something like that? My friend, <laughs> communism and, and Marxist ideology is uh, very carefully and very deliberately finding a toehold in as many institutions and places in our society as possible. Higher education is probably one of the most visible places. Politics and government, it's, it's uh, made terrific inroads there. Even corporate America, all the wokeness that you see going on is just, uh, you know, pretty colors draped around Marxist ideology. Here's what uh, Daniel J. Mitchell says. He says, I've written about how totalitarian ideologies such as communism and Nazism have a lot in common. And he's right, by the way. They're not, uh, you know, the antithesis to one another. They're not, you know, polar opposites. Both subordinate the individual to the state. Both give the state power over the economy. And both slaughter millions of people. But he says the battle is not left versus right. It's statism versus individualism. And he says, first of all, let's start with an article by Bradley Berzer. 
published by Intellectual Takeout. He worries that totalitarianism on the left is making a comeback. Now, this article was published back in 2019, so we've had almost four years since this was published. Tell me if this doesn't ring true. Bradley Berger says, in 1936, you had three choices, national socialism, international socialism, or dignity. In 2018, he says, we find ourselves in similar circumstances. Why is this happening now? First, we scholars have failed to convince the public of just how wicked all forms of communism were and remain. Almost all historians ignore the most salient fact of the 20th century that governments murdered more than 200 million innocents, the largest massacre in the history of the world. And he gives examples. Terror reigned in the killing fields, the Holocaust camps, and the gulags. Second, an entire generation has grown up never knowing such things as the Soviet gulags or even the Berlin Wall. Most younger defenders of communism buy into the oldest propaganda line of the left that, well, real communism has never been tried. Now, Berzer goes on to explain that fascism and socialism are two sides of the same coin. That the socialists embrace socialism is factually accurate. They did national the national socialists rather embraced socialism. They did nationalize very vital industry in Germany, even if by outright intimidation rather than through the law. In his personal diaries, Joseph Goebbels wrote in the late uh, in late 1925, "It would be better for us to end our existence under Bolshevism than to endure slavery under capitalism." Only a few months later, he continued, I think it's terrible that we and the communists are bashing in each other's heads. Yeah, Goebbels, that Goebbels. Holy cow. Whatever the state of the uh, rivalry between the two camps, Goebbels claimed those two forces should ally and conquer. The Italian fascists had even closer ties to the Marxists, with Mussolini having begun his career as a Marxist publicist and writer. A few Italian fascists even held positions in the Comintern. Now, Richard makes, makes similar points in a piece he wrote for the Foundation for Economic Education, asking, how do we react to the hammer and sickle? He says, I don't have to write an article explaining the millions of deaths that occurred at the hands of communist regimes, like the Holocaust, the gulags of the Soviet Union, and the killing fields of Cambodia are widely known. Yet journalists in the UK openly and proudly advocate communism. Statues of Karl Marx are erected. There's no justifiable way a fascist could argue that wasn't real Nazism. But the same isn't true for communism. Since Karl Marx never implemented communism himself, the leaders of communist states always have that get-out-of-jail-free card. Any shortcomings, tragedies, or crises a communist regime faces can always be blamed on a misapplication of Marx's infallible roadmap. The communist ideology in its purest form might be separated from its implementations, but at what point does its awful track record discredit any attempts to advocate it? The history of communism is as blood-stained as that of Nazism, much more so, actually. And he says it's time we treated it as such. Now, the article goes on to say uh, uh, Jeff Jacoby has written on the issue, and Sheldon Richman also expands on this theme. This is a great one. Quote, fascism, fascism is socialism with a capitalist veneer. The word derives from fasces, the Roman symbol of collectivism and power, a tied bundle of rods with a protruding axe. Where socialism sought totalitarian control of a society's economic processes through direct state operation as the means of the means of production, 
fascism sought that control indirectly through domination of nominally private owners. Where socialism abolished all market relations outright, fascism left the appearance of market relations while planning all economic activities. Where socialism abolished money and prices, fascism controlled the monetary system and set all prices and wages politically. Then Richmond explains the vast gulf between capitalism and fascist economics. Entrepreneurship was abolished. State ministries rather than consumers determined what was produced and under what conditions. Fascism is to be distinguished from interventionism or the mixed economy. Interventionism seeks to guide the market process, not eliminate it as fascism did. Under fascism, the state, through official cartels, controlled all aspects of manufacturing, commerce, finance, and agriculture. Planning boards set product lines, production levels, prices, wages, working conditions, and the size of firms. Licensing was ubiquitous. No economic activity could be undertaken without government permission. Excess incomes had to be surrendered as taxes or loans. Since government policy aimed at autarky or national self-sufficiency, protectionism was necessary. Imports were barred or strictly controlled. Fascist governments also undertook massive public works projects financed by steep taxes, borrowing, and fiat money creation. Are you getting a little uneasy feeling, you know, up the back of your neck going, hey, that sure sounds a lot like what our government's doing. (laughs) It's very true. So these aren't new observations. And from here, uh, they they go on to quote uh, Ludwig von Mises, writing on this topic back in the 1940s, saying, the Marxians have resorted to polylogism because they could not refute by logical methods the theories developed by the bourgeois economics or the inferences drawn from these theories demonstrating the impracticality of socialism. As they could not rationally demonstrate the soundness of their own ideas or the unsoundness of their adversaries' ideas, they've denounced the accepted logical methods. The German nationalists had to face precisely the same problem as the Marxians. They also could neither demonstrate the correctness of their own statements nor disprove the theories of economics and praxeology. They took shelter under the roof of polylogism, prepared for them by the Marxians. And of course, they concocted their own brand of polylogism. Neither Marxian nor Nazi polylogism went further to uh, went further than to declare that the logical structure of mind is different with various classes or races. It's not a philosophy or epistemological theory. It's an attitude of narrow-minded fanatics. By the way, Mises, you better have some vocabulary if you want to understand what that man wrote. And these fanatics, by the way, are motivated by hate. The Nazis hate people of different races and religions, while the Marxists hate people of different incomes and classes. This is a pretty detailed article, but it's really remarkable. And it, it gets right to the point of, look, it really comes down to the collective versus the individual. And this is what underlies pretty much any conflict that you see going on today. People who advocate for the collective, well, you have to do what we say because uh, we say so. You know, that's the Borg telling you you're going to be assimilated. And it always is for the purpose of controlling the individual. You got to be strong if you're going to be an individual and if you're going to stand on your own two feet. Be strong. Do it. It's really needed. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I would encourage you take the opportunity to do so. It's not going to cost you anything. I will uh, send you an email each day that I do the program. I won't spam you. You're not going to get endless offers, uh, things that are exciting and too great to ignore. But you will get some great articles that would be worth your time if you want to delve a little bit deeper into a given subject. So I've got three articles I'd like to touch on in this final segment. First one has to do with parents suing elite schools for indoctrinating their kids with diversity, equity, and inclusion, bait and switch. This was uh, reported by Bloomberg that angry parents are suing elite private schools for indoctrinating their children with so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI. Following the murder of George Floyd, the $50,000 per year Brentwood School in Los Angeles announced that it was reimagining its purpose with an eye toward anti-racism and DEI. Well, parent Jerome Eisenberg, whose daughter attends the school, called it a bait-and-switch on parents, suing the school last year for breach of contract, civil rights violations, and emotional distress. Here's the problem. The curriculum change shifted away from teaching students critical thinking skills, how to think, and started indoctrinating them into what to think based on Brentwood's preferred political fad of the moment. That's a direct quote from Eisenberg's lawsuit, which entered private arbitration back in November. Pretty interesting stuff here. You know, I've often heard, you know, well, you know, we, we hear private schools are, you know, they're the solution for, for what's happened to our public schools. And by the way, I do believe our public schools, sadly, are becoming indoctrination centers. And it's not just in the big, you know, metropolitan areas. This is happening you know, in, in even even smaller school districts to varying degrees. But you think, well, private schools would be, you know, they won't put up with that nonsense. Parents can vote with their feet if they want to, which is true. But here you have parents suing private schools, and when they do this, it's usually for breach of contract. So, interesting article. I hope you'll check it out. This increased polarization apparently is uh, finding its way into pretty much every school across America and in many ways around the world. And this whole diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion, I wonder if, if a lot of this has to do with some of the incredible, just mindless, woke advertising that we're seeing from so many of the iconic American brands. It certainly has found its way into corporate America. It's found its way now into academia. You can't let your guard down for a second, can you? All right, moving on to another article here. Um, Oh, this was a great one from the Brownstone Institute. Steve Templeton talks about the fall of the experts. And, you know, it's it's so funny. I still see people trying to explain this way. The the Idaho Statesman, this is the uh, newspaper of note in Boise, Idaho, was complaining about Sarah Walton Brady. Sarah's the mom who was arrested back in, I think it was April of 2020, for taking her kids to the park and then failing to disperse when a police officer told them the park is closed due to concerns over COVID. And actually, they could stand there in the park, but the playground area apparently was closed. Now, none of this was necessary. But the officer escalated, threatened to arrest her if she didn't leave, and she didn't leave. The, the, the statesman reports it as well. She's the one who defied COVID precautions. And it's like, you want to pretend 
that all those precautions, the shutting down of businesses, the lockdowns, the masks, the, the mandatory vaccinations, it was all necessary. When I can tell you very clearly, it was not. I, I, there are cuss words that I want to say when, when it comes to, we told you so. You were told. There were many voices that were pointing out, none of this is stopping people from getting sick. Besides the fact that you're violating people's rights. And government is seizing power that was never intended to be its power to seize or to, be, to even be invested with. And so it's, it's, it's disgusting to hear how the experts, well, we got to follow the experts. we got to follow, you know, what science is saying. And, and you know, this article from, from Steve Templeton just clearly points out the experts are just as fallible as you and I. Every bit is fallible. And he goes into some great details that, that point this out. They're prone to uh, biases. They're prone to toxic groupthink. They're prone to political influence as much as anybody else which is very strong medicine for don't take them at their word. Don't believe them just because, well, you know, I am an expert. Don't fall into the folly of expert worship. All right, we're going to end on a positive note. Disappointment's part of the world we live in. Annie Holmquist has a remarkable essay about how even things that are meant for evil can be used for good if you have the right attitude. She says, have you ever had a Joseph moment? She says, I had one the other day. By Joseph, I'm referencing the biblical character, Abraham's great-grandson, the youngest of 12 brothers. Although favored by his father, he was hated by his brothers who soon sold him as a slave to Egypt. What a great family, huh? While in Egypt, he rose to the top as the employee of a prominent man only to be falsely accused of raping the man's wife. This offense landed him in prison for years. But these prison years were not wasted, for events that happened there soon catapulted Joseph to second-in-command in ancient Egypt, where he orchestrated a plan to save that country and many others from death by famine. Joseph's story finally wraps up when his brothers come to town to buy food and learn that the brother they treated terribly now has the power to make their lives miserable. But he doesn't. Instead, Joseph chooses to see the providence of God in his life circumstances, both good and bad, and forgive, telling his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What a powerful statement. Annie Holmquist says, we all have difficulties in life. A friend betrays us, a family member explodes in fury and refuses to interact for months. We're falsely accused at work. Even the government and society in general seem to go after us with unjust taunts of racism or fascism. And when those things happen, it's easy to let our hurt and betrayal get the best of us, consuming our thoughts and actions for months. She says, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if Joseph wrestled with some of those same feelings. At some point, however, he was able to rise above those wrestlings, forgiving those who wronged him, and seeing God's fingerprints in their actions, despite how terrible they were. And she says, as I began to realize the other day, getting glimpses of God's fingerprints in the difficulties of life puts a whole new perspective on things. So often it's easy to to view God as the meanie up in heaven who doesn't hear our prayers or give us what we want. But the reality is that those things we view as mean or difficult or uncomfortable or mistakes are really just his way of looking out for us and seeking our good, even if it might not seem like it right away. 20th century minister A.M. Overton said it best in his poem, He Maketh No Mistake. 
My father's way may twist and turn, my heart may throb and ache, but in my soul I'm glad I know he maketh no mistake. My cherished plans may go astray, my hopes may fade away, but still I'll trust my Lord to lead, for he doth know the way. Through Though night be dark and it may seem that day will never break, I'll pin my faith, my all, in him. He maketh no mistake. There's so much now I cannot see. My eyesight's far too dim. But come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all to him. For by and by the mist will lift and plain it all he'll make. Through all the way, though dark to me, he made not one mistake. She asks, are you going through a difficult time? Is there something in your past you have difficulty forgiving and forgetting? Or maybe you're just overwhelmed with the direction of the world, wondering how anything good can come out of the increasing evil we see swelling around us. Well, Annie's advice is look for the ways God is using those evil things to accomplish His good. It will change your perspective to realize that the things we think are mistakes are really just the plot twists to make the good seem all the more delightful and surprising when it comes. I don't know, maybe I'm the one who needed to hear that. I'm not saying, oh, I'm going through a terribly difficult time right now, but things are challenging. I know I'm not alone in this. I, I talk to a lot of different people in the course of a week, and, and, and pretty much everybody I know is breathing hard right now. They're having to put in real effort. And some people may say, well, you know, you just put it all on God and say it's, you know, this part of a bigger plan. That sounds like a cop-out. I don't think it is, and I don't think that's what Annie's advocating. I think it's, it's about learning to, to have the perspective to where even the things that are, that are most testing us can be seen as a positive or at least a stepping stone to something that's better, maybe a better version of ourselves. I know this, the deepest uh, sorrow or failures that I've ever tasted in my life are what made the triumphs all the sweeter. Does that make sense? When things go right, I mean, it's, it's great. But when things go wrong, it can help us appreciate how sweet those things are when, when they do go right. This is The Brian Hyde Show.